Well, this <clears throat> evening, you all get the, hopefully the privilege and not the burden of listening to a sermon from Old Testament prophecy. Uh, part of uh, our task as seminary students is to preach from each genre of scripture before we graduate seminary. Some of those obviously are more often than others because we spend most of our time in the New Testament. But one of them is Old Testament prophecy. So this evening, I'd like for you to turn your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. The book of Zechariah. Was that a whistle I heard? <laughs> when was the last time anybody read from the book of Zechariah? Yeah, it's been a while. I don't know if our reading plan has ever gone through Zechariah. I don't remember ever a time, although I have, haven't been here very long. So we'll be in the book of Zechariah this evening, and um, we're going to take probably about a third of the time to introduce uh, the context and the book, uh, because obviously we're parachuting into a text um, that we're not familiar with or we haven't been studying. Um, and so just know that as we go in. But I'll go ahead and give you the title up front. The title is, All Israel Shall Be Saved. All Israel Shall Be Saved. Now, beginning with the historical context surrounding the book of Zechariah. Author, you guessed it, the author is Zechariah, the prophet. Um, but we need to talk about the historical context of what, when he was saying what he said and, and why it was recorded um, for us. Zechariah's name means Yahweh remembers, Yahweh remembers. And his task was to encourage the Jews who were returning from the Babylonian exile and captivity, and he was encouraging them during difficult circumstances. He was, they were trying to rebuild the temple, and he was encouraging them. And the, the main way that he was encouraging them was not only rebuking sin, but also letting them in on future events. And how God's faithfulness reaches uh, not only from the time that they came back, but also to the future. Now let's back up a little bit and talk about how Israel ended up in this exile and make sure that we're all on the same page. The first thing is that Israel, we know, was largely an unfaithful nation, right? God had created, a, a, or I should say, cut, cut a covenant with Abraham and then with the nation, and they were unfaithful to that covenant. And... They set up uh, high places, the Old Testament talks about, where they worshiped false gods on these high places. Literally, I mean, the high place is just a hill where they exalted these false gods instead of Yahweh. And one of the first kings, or really the, the first king to do this was King Solomon. He married foreign women and had many wives, and they turned his heart away from Yahweh to these false gods, and God ultimately judged Solomon and the nation because of that. And the nation was split. Who remembers what the nation was split? What were the two names of the nation? We had the northern nation. What was the name of the northern nation? Nope, that was the southern nation. What was the name of the northern nation? Israel. Very good. Right? We had these two, and I, sh I should call them kingdoms, not nations. It was still the nation of Israel, but these two kingdoms split. And they had kings, different kings, and some of these kings were, were good and and encourage them to rebuke sin and follow the Lord, and others continue to follow after, these, follow after these false gods. And so God judged these two kingdoms. The first kingdom he judged was the northern kingdom of Israel, and he sent the nation, the pagan nation of Assyria, to come and to take them captive. 
And he takes them captive and they go away into a foreign land. And the nation or the kingdom of Israel never returns as a kingdom. And then, years later, God judges the, the kingdom of Judah in the same way, but with a, with a different nation. The nation of Babylon comes, takes them captive, takes them off into the foreign land where they are taken as, as slaves because of their disobedience to God. And Jeremiah the prophet said that this time away from home, this nation or this kingdom eventually comes back and that this captivity would last 70 years. So they were to be in this land for 70 years. So the consequences of the sin was a divided nation and eventually a captivity. Um, and then while they're away, right, this nation of Judah or this kingdom of Judah is away, the powers switch hands. So Babylon is actually conquered by Persia, and a new king basically inherits these people, these, these people from Judah. And the Lord puts it in his heart to allow them to return to build the temple. Remember when some of you were here when we studied Ezra and Nehemiah? In the beginning of Ezra, it talks about how King Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord put it into his heart, stirred up his spirit, and he decided to let these Jews go back to their land and to rebuild that temple. So this is where we're at. The king is sending Jews back to their land to rebuild the temple. And Zechariah, is about 20 years later after the, the initial wave goes back, and Zechariah is in Jerusalem rebuilding this temple with the people. But the people are, are facing many, many different difficulties, right? They need encouragement. And, I mean, some of the difficulties, they're rel relatively few in number. I mean, they were in the millions when King David and King Solomon ruled. Now, years and years later, there's only about 50,000 that returned. The temple and the city had been destroyed by Babylon. Imagine coming home and your house is completely desolate. I mean, imagine, imagine just leaving your home right now and 70 years later, right, your old folks... And you tell your grandkids, go back and live in the home that I lived in in Texas. Even if nobody had burned it or, or, or you know, tried to destroy it, it would be quite the task for somebody to move back into a home after 70 years. Right? So this city, these homes, everything's in rubble. They're also facing discouragement because, remember, if we, when we studied Ezra and Nehemiah, there were both people that were celebrating when the foundation was laid. They're like, yes, we're rebuilding the temple. And there were other people that were weeping. They're like, oh man, this foundation is so much smaller than the original, te original temple that Solomon had built. And so we have you know, people that are weeping over the fact that it's not, it's not as big and grand and other people that are celebrating. So you have these mixed emotions and desires from the people. And then also imagine this, this kingdom had left for 70 years. And so the people that were left there were like, hey, you guys are coming back and you think you're still in charge? Like, well, I don't think so. So they were also facing opposition from their neighbors and discouragement from their neighbors who were trying to stop them from rebuilding this temple, from rebuilding the city. So this is the, the situation that the Jews find themselves, the situation that Zechariah finds himself, and God calls him to prophesy to these people and to encourage them. Now, let's talk a little bit about Zechariah's uh, purpose, his purpose for writing. We already covered that. His purpose for writing. Um, again, it's to encourage these post-exilic Jews. 
that Yahweh remembers, and specifically that Yahweh remembers his covenants and his promises to Judah. God had judged Judah, right? And he sent them away with the Babylonian captivity. But God remembers his covenants and his promises to his people, and he brings them back. And just because this temple isn't as big or as grand as the first temple, he still remembers his promises. And Zechariah encourages them not to forget God's faithfulness. This picture isn't too accurate. These people are smiling and having a good time, it appears. But they weren't having a good time. They were having a difficult time rebuilding the temple. Um, and, he, and again, Zechariah is a prophet. And so he's much like a, he's preaching, um, but he's uh, preaching in a different sense than what preachers preach today, right? Because Zechariah is revealing a new revelation. Right? When a preacher comes up and stands before you and teaches you God's word, uh, you can read it for yourself, and you have God's word, and it's nothing new. Right? But Zechariah is revealing new information to these Jews. And we have to remember that as he's, as he's encouraging them and as he's rebuking sin, he's also reviewing, or, uh, renewing, or, excuse me, uh, revealing new information. And he's re- revealing new information about what? Both about Jesus' first coming and about Jesus' second coming both about, about both comings. And we have to recognize that when the prophets told about both comings, they didn't know that there were two comings of Jesus. Um, it's like, actually, I have a slide. The, uh, it's like mountains. Maybe you've heard this illustration before, right? When you look at those mountains, you can't really tell how much distance is in between the ones in front and the ones behind and the ones way back, Right? So you're looking at mountains like this. Well, how much distance is in between them? You can't really tell when you're looking at it straight like this. And then maybe you fly over them, and you could see, wow, look at how much distance there is between these mountains. I couldn't tell from that view. It's the same with the, the Old Testament prophets, right? They looked, and they saw that there would be a coming Messiah. And they saw the things that he would do, but they didn't know exactly what he would do at the first coming and what he would do at the second coming. Some might argue that they didn't even know that there were two comings of Christ. Look at Zechariah 9.9, and we'll look at this. A a prophecy that you're likely familiar with, Zechariah 9.9. This was uh, fulfilled, verse 9 was fulfilled with the triumphal entry, uh, what we call Palm Sunday. It says, uh, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the fowl of a donkey. That was fulfilled, and it was fulfilled literally in Jesus' first coming. But the second, or the the next verse, uh, verse 10, says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, of course, Jesus and God sit on their throne. But is there peace from sea to sea? No, there's not peace from sea to sea. And if Jesus fulfilled verse 9 literally, he came literally on a donkey into Jerusalem, wouldn't we expect that we'd actually have peace from sea to sea? Yes, we do, right? But there's no time gap. It doesn't say, well, you're going to have to wait for thousands of years between verse 9 and verse 10, does it? No, because Zechariah didn't recognize that. So we have to, as we come into the book of Zechariah, we have to recognize these things. 
So just to, to gather ourselves a little bit, I know I'm throwing a lot of history and different things at you, but Zechariah is prophesying to, prophesying to these Jews probably about 2,500 years ago, and he's encouraging them, right? You need to rebuild the temple. Your, your Messiah, your king, he's coming. You need to be faithful and follow what the Lord has told you to do and rebuild the temple. And to them, that was imminent. We know that it took years before the Messiah came, but we don't know if it's going to be years before Jesus comes again or if it could be tonight, right? It was imminent to them. So this is an encouragement to them. And as modern readers, we, we can see God's faithfulness to the Israelite people and encouraging them in this way. And it's the same. God is faithful. He, he, he promised that he would come. And we know that Zechariah 9.9 has been f- fulfilled. Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. We know that Zechariah 9.10 will be fulfilled, literally. We can trust his promises. Well, our text this morning, I've already given you the, the title, All Israel Shall Be Saved. But the text this morning, or sorry, this evening, will be uh, Zechariah 12, 10, 13 through 9. Or 13, 9. 12, 10 through chapter 13, 9. Um, and before we read those particular verses, go ahead and turn there. We'll read and give you the immediate context surrounding those verses. Yes, we're still, we're still introducing this text, but I, I want you to be able to uh, understand where we're coming from. This, this text that we're going to be preaching, or I'll be preaching this evening and looking at this evening, is sandwiched between uh, two, two texts that speak of Jerusalem being surrounded by her enemies on all sides. Look at chapter 12, verse 2. Chapter 12, verse 2. It says, Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege, that is when Jerusalem is surrounded, is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. And Zechariah says the same thing in chapter 14, verse 2. Look at that one with me. It says, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Now, perhaps you're sitting here going, I don't know how that's an encouragement. How is it that these Jews are rebuilding the city and Zechariah is telling them it's going to be surrounded by its enemies and there will be a dark day? Specifically, this text talks about the the day of the Lord, the the day of God's uh, wrath and judgment. So we need to give you a definition of that. And it's, a, it's an encouragement because the day of the Lord, while we often associate it with God's wrath and judgment, also includes God's salvation. It also includes God's salvation. So refer to the following definition. The day of the Lord refers to an undisclosed period of time, meaning that we don't know for sure if it's going to be a 24-hour day or more. At the end of human history, where God's wrath will be poured out upon unbelievers, but he will save the remnant of Israel, thus fulfilling Romans 11.26, all Israel will be saved. So it's important to note that the day of the Lord, when we, when we talk about the day of the Lord, we usually think of wrath and judgment. But it includes salvation. What time does our day start with? What time does our day start with? Come on. What time? Yeah, in the, in the middle of the night. 
right? Not a hard question. <laughs> For the Jews, their day starts at 6 p.m. So it's an illustration of the, uh, uh, of the day of the Lord. Right, it starts, or the prophets use it as an illustration as, uh, for the day of the Lord. Although it's a, it, we don't know if it's actually 24 hours long, it's probably probably more. The first thing that comes at six o'clock, what happens at six o'clock? Generally speaking, the sun goes down. Exactly, the sun goes down and it's dark, right? And that's God's judgment. And then what happens in the the latter half of the the Jewish day? Eventually, the sun comes up. That's the salvation. That takes place. So we can use that as, a, as an illustration. And I, I believe that the, the prophets knew that. And it doesn't, the, the day of the Lord is not just wrath, but it's also God's salvation. So that's how this day and this, this prophecy is going to be encouraging to the Jews. God isn't, isn't sugarcoating it for them. Um, he's telling them how it is. He always does. And within this day of that, that the enemies are coming against Jerusalem, there will be salvation for the Jews. Now let's talk a little bit about this, this battle, right? I talked about the fact that Jerusalem was going to be surrounded by her enemies. When is this? What, what, what are we talking about here? Even though it's the Old Testament, we're talking about a day that's still future to us. Ultimately, what we're talking about is the, the battle of Armageddon. Look at, uh, and this battle will take place at the end of the tribulation period, but look at verses 8 and 9 in chapter 12, verses 8 and 9 in chapter 12, right before the text that we'll be looking at. Chapter, verse 8 says, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Okay, so... Jerusalem, the prophet's telling them, is going to be sieged and going to be surrounded by its enemies. But the Lord is going to come and fight for Jerusalem. And this, these, these enemies that are coming against Jerusalem, they'll be led by the Antichrist, right? I mean, the, the Jews don't completely understand that. Uh, we know that because we have the New Testament. But in that, that future day, the Lord will defend and fight for Israel. And the text says that the, the weakest Israelites will be like David. Can you imagine... Uh, a nation full of Davids? Who did David defeat? Goliath. Goliath. Could you imagine a, a nation full of giant slayers? That's what the Lord says the nation will be like when they're fighting alongside Christ. And Christ is depicted in verse 8 as none other than the, the angel of the Lord. And he will execute his judgment on Israel. That's why we see these uh, nations coming against Israel and some of them will die, and, and the Lord will execute his judgment against Israel, but then he will come and save the remnant. And this, again, will be a, a, a literal coming. Look at chapter 14, 3. 14, 3, it says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. 14, 4, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. It will be a literal return. And Zechariah is telling this as, a, as, a, as an encouragement to the Jews. Yes, there will be a very difficult times ahead, but your Messiah, your king, is coming, and he will fight for you. And again, just to remind you, they didn't see the two comings. They just knew his coming was imminent. He was coming at any moment. And Christ's second coming will mean 
what we call the second coming now, will mean that all Israel will be saved. So let's dive into this text with that back, background information, and I'll, I'll do my best to kind of continue to give you context as we work through this. Read with me chapter 12, verses 10 through 14. Chapter 12, verses 10 through 14. This is God speaking through the prophet Zechariah. God says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself, and the wives, or their wives by themselves. And the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites by themselves, and their wives by themselves. All the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. In these verses, we have our first point. It's the sorrow of Israel. Now, Zechariah had just stated in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 12 that the Lord would come and fight and defeat Jerusalem or Jerusalem's enemies, Israel's enemies. So, so why then do we have all of this mourning? Once the, the enemy was defeated or perhaps, you know, during the defeat, the Lord will open the Israelites' eyes and they will recognize that this angel of the Lord, this angel of Yahweh who is fighting for them is none other than Jesus Christ. It is the second person of the Trinity who has returned to fight for them. Right? You remember in, in, in Acts when the scales fall off of Paul's eyes and he sees the Lord Jesus for the first time and he recognizes the person, the, the people and the, the person that I've been persecuting is none other than the Lord. The, it'll be the same for the Jews. They'll recognize that the person that we rejected, the person that our ancestors rejected, and we continue to reject, is in fact the Lord. He is God. What we have here depicted in the, the, the first half of verse 10 is uh, regeneration. Regeneration. Re, I'll read verse 10, the first half again. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. They are no longer blinded to their uh, sin and self-righteousness. God's spirit will permeate every corner of their heart, and they will see him for who he is. Think about, you know, uh, I don't know, a dunk, a dunk take or something at a, at, a, at a carnival, right? You ever do a dunk tape where somebody throws the ball and you get dunked in, and you're completely wet, right? There's no, there's no like, oh, well, I'm going to avoid some of the water, right? Completely wet. God's spirit will completely change their hearts. And it's the same in all ages of uh, God's creation, right? All through redemptive history, it's the same. When, when somebody comes to Christ, they don't come unless God has first acted upon their heart and changed their heart and given them a new heart to be able to believe, right? Uh, the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel talks about, it's like removing an old heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh so that they can believe, so that they can see their sin, and so that they can turn to Jesus Christ. And in that day, Revelation 1-7 actually talks about the fact that not only will all the Jews who are remaining alive turn and mourn because they've rejected the Messiah, all people will do so. Listen to the verse, uh, Revelation 1-9. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, 
even those who pierced him, referring to the Jews, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. All the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Every person remaining alive after that great battle, the battle of Armageddon, will mourn over the one who was pierced. They'll, they'll, they'll recognize who's he, who he was because God's spirit has been poured out upon them. And recognize, in the, in the new birth, in regeneration, the only proper response to sin is what? If you want to know if you're truly reborn, if you've truly been born again, it's to mourn over your sin, to hate your sin. Matthew 5, 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is what the real regeneration and what the, the, what the new birth really looks like. Now, did you catch the, the Trinity in verse 10? Read it again with me, the second half. So they will look on me. This is God speaking. So they will look on me, whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. What's going on here? He's speaking in both the first person and the third person. It's because God is triune, right? And God the Father is referring to God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And, and this, this verse, guys, has been a huge stumbling block for the Jews. Right? You, you look at Jewish commentaries or uh, Jewish rabbis, even today, I mean, all kinds of ways to get around the fact that, well, this... You know, yeah, sure, it says God is the one that pierced, but does it really mean God? I mean, how could God die, right? I mean, God is spirit. And they try to find all kinds of ways to get around this. Or, or pierce doesn't really mean pierce because, I mean, God can't die. So it must mean something else. Maybe, maybe God was, just, was, was wounded in some way because we had rejected him at that time, and he, he's wounded. No, pierce in this verse, it literally means pierce. It means to, to die, to be murdered. You remember Phineas in Numbers 29? Uh, Phineas was, uh, was, a, was he, I believe he was a, a priest. Uh, yeah, he was the son of Aaron. And he saw an uh, Israelite man and a Midianite woman uh, doing things they shouldn't do, right? And he basically goes into the tent, and the text says that he pierced both of them through. He took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body. Were they living after he pierced them through? No, they weren't living, right? He killed them. And then the plague upon Israel in that text, Numbers 25, was stopped. Or Saul. Saul uh, was fighting, King Saul in the Old Testament was fighting the Philistines. And he tells his armor bearer, same word. He used the same word. Pierce me through so that these Philistines don't, don't get me and make sport of my body or make sport of me. Right? He's asking his armor bearer to kill him. That's what's happening in this text. God is being killed. So not surprisingly then, this, this verse has caused the stumbling block for the Jews. Again, the Jews had good theology in that they knew that God was spirit. How, how could God as a spirit die? How could he? Well, they, the answer comes later on in this text. It's because God becomes man, Jesus Christ, right? He's fully God and fully man. And only because he's fully man can he die. But we'll save that part for when Zechariah gets there. Now in verse uh, 11, they're mourning. They're mourning. Why are they mourning? Uh, because of what they realize. All these generations have rejected our Messiah. And 
That means that none of them are saved and that we've rejected him. Ultimately, they're mourning over their own personal sin. Uh, Verse 11 basically speaks about the fact that uh, their mourning will be like the mourning when King Josiah was killed. Uh, They had a good king, King Josiah, and he was killed, and the whole nation mourned for him. And then verses 12 through 14, nine times it says in those verses, uh, by themselves or by itself. What is that that referring to? It's referring to that each individual is mourning over their individual sin of rejecting the Messiah. It's not a national day of prayer um, around the flagpole for our sin as a nation or anything like that. No, this is individual salvation. And this is how it happens throughout all of redemptive history. God doesn't save nations. He saves individuals, right? Even the nation of Israel, he saves them as individuals, and they repent of their sin as individuals because they as individuals have rejected Christ, and then they turn to the one who was pierced, right? Nobody's repenting for you. Nobody's believing for you. Just by way of quick application, right? You guys should know you're not Christians because your parents are Christians, And you're not not Christians because your parents aren't Christians, right? You as individuals have to make a decision. You as individuals have to mourn over your sin and recognize that because of your sin, you'll be separated from God forever and cast into the lake of fire unless you return from that sin and turn to Christ. And if you do... The fountain of forgiveness will be opened, which is our next point this evening, the the forgiveness of God, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13. Verse 1 of 13, it says, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for impurity. Now this fountain uh, refers to two things. It refers both to the refreshment that comes with forgiveness, and it refers to the, the constant flowing uh, forgiveness that comes from the Father, right? You, you, you look at a, a mountain spring, um, and you're like, I mean, where does that water come from? It just keeps coming. It, where is it coming from? That's like God's forgiveness. It's constant, right? So, so like a, a cold drink of water on a hot day, you're like, man, I just, I just really need a drink. And, you know, that feeling of refreshment, ah, oh, good. Now I can go back and play gaga ball, or I can go back to shooting hoops. The refreshment from forgiven sins is far greater than any refreshment that we could receive to our physical bodies. And this, this constant forgiveness, this constant flowing of forgiveness, it not only does it initially uh, cleanse us from sin, but we can constantly come to the Father. So sin and iniquity, let's talk about it. It says it cleanses us from sin and impurity. At the end of verse 1, sin is just a, a general word for sin in the Hebrew. It means that we've missed the mark. Right? We know that God has called us to be holy. He's called us to be perfect like him. None of us are perfect. None of us are holy. We've missed that mark. And then purity. Impurity speaks to uh, the, the results of sin. You're dirty because of your sin. In the Old Testament, the lepers, they were cast out from the community. They weren't allowed into the community because they were dirty. They were unclean. It's the same with God if you're not in Christ. You can't come near him because you're unclean. It's not so much anymore, but has anyone been to a a fancy steakhouse? A couple of you? Okay. Well, again, it's not so much anymore, but it used to be that if you tried to go into a steakhouse with, you know, flip-flops and shorts on, they're like, what are you doing, man? 
get out of here. You had to wear, you know, pants and, you know, nice shoes and at least a collared shirt, if not a jacket. Don't ask me how I know. They wouldn't, they wouldn't let you in. And many still don't. And it's the same with God. I mean, unless you have the proper garments, you're not getting in. But God doesn't turn you away and say, go find the garments, right? He gives them, right? It's the righteousness of Christ. And then you can come in to his presence. God has provided a way. He has uh, dealt with our sin on the cross uh, through Jesus' blood and his life and imputes that life to us, gives us that life. And then when we are in Christ, this, this fountain of forgiveness, I, w- I want to talk about this a little bit more and how it's constant to us. Right? Once you're in Christ, you no longer know God as judge, but you know him as father. And, and you, know the, you know in the Gospels when, when Jesus goes around and washes the feet of the disciples, and first Peter's like, no, no, Lord, you can't wash my feet. And basically Jesus tells him, you need to be washed. And then Peter's like, well, wash my whole body then. And he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. He's like, only your feet needs to be washed. Because you, you, you've, you've trusted in me, you believe in me, and therefore in God's sight, you are righteous because he sees my righteousness. However, you still live in a world of sin, and you are still uh, living in the sinful nature. So basically... You still need cleansing because you're still sinning, right? No, everybody knows that you still sin, or you should know that you still sin even if you're in Christ, right? And so that constant flowing of forgiveness is not just uh, the one-time forgiveness. It's a constant flowing forgiveness because we know God not as our judge, but as our Father. First John uh, 1 6 and 7 says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Having been justified because we've looked upon the pierced one, then you can continue to come to the Father for forgiveness. This uh, fountain of forgiveness is in this verse is what inspired William Cooper to pen the hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood. The words go as follows There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That is for the house of David and all its inhabitants in this day, but also for you right now if you turn from your sin to Jesus Christ. Zechariah goes on in verse 2 to speak of the spiritual cleansing that will take place uh, with this forgiveness of sins. Verse 2 says, It will come about in those or in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. In this verse, uh, I mean, he's talking about that future day. Can you imagine not even remembering your sin? Right? The, the names of the idols aren't even remembered. Imagine, think about the things that steal your time away from Jesus. You won't even remember those things in that day. The cleansing will be so pure, so, so extensive that you won't even remember the sins that used to steal your time away from Jesus Christ. Now, in verses 3 through 6, we have a, a hypothetical situation. We're talking about this cleansing and how the land has been cleansed, and likely that cleansing has taken place in this big battle that took place earlier in the chapter, Battle of Armageddon. All of the, the false prophets and the, and the unbelievers have been 
wiped out. They're cleansed. No more, right? So then in verses 3, three through 6 of, of chapter 13, it's probably a hypothetical situation, and we'll talk through this. Uh, we'll label it the shame of the false prophet's wounds, the shame of the false prophet's wounds. It's, verse 3 says, if anyone still prophesies, as if there, there won't be anybody, but if anyone still prophesies, this is what it would be like. It says, if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, you shall not live, for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. What irony. The parents of the false prophet will, will pierce him through. Same word that was used in chapter 12, verse 10 about our Lord. He will be pierced through. And this is what Israel was supposed to do. In Deuteronomy 13, it says, if anyone entices you secretly saying, let us go serve other gods, you shall not yield to him or listen to him and your eyes shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. This is what the God, God had called the Israelites to do if anyone tried to lead them away to false gods, but they didn't do it. In that day, they will do it. Their, their hatred for sin will be like we've never seen before and their loyalty to God will be like we've never seen before. Right now, do you hate your sin in that way that you, you want to pierce it through or your friend's sin? Do, do you look away when your friend sins or do you confront them in your sin? And do you hope that they would confront you in sin? Pierce each other's sin, kill sin in each other's lives and confess it to one another so that you can put it off and put on righteousness. And that day, the hatred of sin will also be like verse 4 through 6 says. It says, also, it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. And they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. But he will say, I am not a prophet. I am a tiller of the ground, for a man sold me as a slave in my youth. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? Then he will say, those with which my friend, or with, with, with which I was wounded in, my, in the house of my friends. What is going on here? The prophet is basically coming up with any excuse he can, right? He takes off his hairy robe. You remember John the Baptist or Elijah, right? They put on that hairy robe. It was a cloak, uh, and it just marked him as a prophet. Well, the false prophets, because they wanted to deceive people, would put the same thing on. So they, they hide that. They don't anyone to know about it, so they hide that. And then they come up with outlandish ex excuses. Well, I was a slave all my life, um, so there wasn't even a chance for me to be a prophet. And they'll say, no, what about those wounds on your chest? That's what it means in between your arms here. Right? They had big, false prophets had big wounds on their chest. Do you remember First uh, Kings 18 when the, basically Yahweh and Elijah had a showdown with the, the false prophets in Baal? And it says in that text that those prophets cut themselves to try to elicit Baal to come down and burn up this sacrifice. That's how they would elicit favor from a false god, right? I mean, pretty silly, right? And so they're like, no, no, you have these wounds that mark you as a false prophet. Their hatred for sin and their love for God and their loyalty to God will be like this in that day. But those aren't the only wounds that Zechariah talks about. He goes on in verses 7 through 9 to talk about the glory of the true prophet's wounds. Verse 7 through 9. Verse 7, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people. And they will say, 
the Lord is my God. Zechariah turns to the subject that he began this section with, the pierced Messiah. The true shepherd is the one who is pierced in verse 10. And in verse 7 here, we have the answer to the Jewish problem. They're like, how is it that God can die? God is spirit. He cannot die. What does this text say about the person who will die? Look at it again. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate. The Messiah is a man. That's how he dies, because he comes to represent the human race and die on our behalf. But what is an associate? An associate is someone who is equal to. Someone who's equal to. So this person, this Messiah, is both a man and he's equal to God. The only person that fits that bill in human history is who? Yeah, Jesus Christ, right? Jesus said in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. The Jews knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He was a man, and he was God. He is the God-man. He's the one who Zechariah predicted, the one whom the Jews would kill. And yet, in verse 7, who is it that kills the Messiah? Who's speaking in this text? God is speaking, right? And he says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd. We see God's sovereignty over Jesus' death, but yet we see man's responsibility because it says that they mourned over the one who they pierced in verse 10. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him. And, his, and by his wounds we are healed. Now, what, what is the, the purpose of Zechariah revealing this to the Jews? I beat it pretty hard in the beginning and through working through the context, right? Remember the context. These Jews are building a temple and they're discouraged by many things. And Zechariah is encouraging them to be faithful to the Lord. But he's also telling them to trust in who? He's telling them to trust in God, in Yahweh. Don't make the same mistakes your ancestors made, right? They're weeping over this temple and their circumstances. Don't, don't trust in the temple, Zechariah says. Trust in the God of the temple. Trust in Yahweh. And we know that ultimately the Jews rejected their Messiah, but we also know that God is a good and gracious and favorable God. We can't be uh, dogmatic about this, but I like to believe that in that day, some of the Jews were actually saved when Zechariah delivered these words, and some did recognize and put their faith in the God of the temple and not in the temple and the rituals themselves. And in that day when Zechariah delivered these words, 2,500 years ago, they were reminded of God's faithful character. But now we live in what? The church age, right? God has turned and he works through the church, through us, through his saints. And in that day, Zechariah talks about the fact that uh, two-thirds of the Israelites will be destroyed. That's what it talks about in verse 8 when it says that two parts will be cut off 
but a third will be left, right? So the Antichrist and Armageddon come against Jerusalem, and many of the Jews are, are killed in judgment. But then a third is saved, and, and we see God pour out their spirit upon them and save them. This is God's remnant. And when Paul talks about in 1126, all Israel being saved, this is who he's talking about. The Jews that are left remaining after that great battle. So, so what, what do we do with all this? First, just like the Messiah's first coming was imminent to the Jews in that day when Zechariah delivered these words, Christ's second return is imminent to us. Right? And with Christ's second return comes the day of the Lord, the wrath and the judgment against sin. But, but we know that if you're in Christ and you have put your faith and trust in the pierced one and mourn over your sin, turn from your sin, then you're saved from that. Jesus will return, and he'll return in the air and call his church to him, and, and pull them out of the world before all of this wrath takes place. Before the day of the Lord. And you know what's amazing? In Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back to fight for Jerusalem, guess who he brings with him? He brings the church in white garments. And we, if you're in Christ, return with him at his second coming and fight for Jerusalem, for the Jews, to restore his kingdom and to restore his honor. And so, do you know if you're going to be with those that return? Are you delivered from the day of wrath? Are you trusting in Jesus and are you mourning over your sin? You're not perfect, but the fountain of forgiveness is continual. And when you sin, you're faithful to go to the Father and Confess those sins and repent of those sins. If you've looked upon the pierced one that Zechariah talks about here, and you mourn over your sin, then he will rescue you from the wrath to come, and you will come and fight with him in that day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words delivered through the, the prophet Zechariah. Uh, so much here um, in this book, um, in this chapter, in these words, Lord, we are... Uh, grateful that you reveal so much to us, um, and we're grateful that you are faithful uh, to your covenant promises with the Jews, and we know that we can trust you, um, not only with their, the promises that you've made to them, but the promises that you've made to us, namely that if we turn from our sin and we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we will be saved from this day of wrath. Father, we pray that you would open hearts and minds to this truth, and that you would help us who are in you to, in Christ to, to, to live faithfully for you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.